you have a copy of God's Word with you, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in the Gospel of John in the 10th chapter, starting in the 10th verse. Monday morning, about 7 o'clock, I got a text. It's, it's a text, at least the conversation usually occurs something like this on a Monday morning. My dad texts me about 7 o'clock. He thinks I need to be out of the bed, and I was out of the bed, at least by an hour or so, already spending some time in God's Word. And he sent me a text, but the, the conversation wasn't that it was like it was supposed to be, like it had always been. Because it's usually about, hey, what's the kids, what are the kids doing this week? What's happening this week? But his text this past Monday was, so talk to me about the spirit-filled life. What? Is this Charlie Tillman? Yeah, okay. Um, so we get in a conversation. And I know what my dad's doing. My dad's driving down the road, and he's auto-speak texting, and I... And that's fine for him. And so I said, did you mean to, to say that? And he said, yeah, I meant to say that. I was like, okay, so let's get in this conversation. So we start having this conversation, and he says this. Brian, if, here, here's a great sermon series for you. If you don't ever preach anything else other than John chapter 10, verse 10, you will be doing well. And I said, okay. He said, just start with John 10, 10. My dad's not a preacher. My dad's an optometrist. He said, just start with John 10, 10. Then go anywhere you want and come back and you can speak about abundant life. To be honest with you, it's probably the best thing my dad's ever said. So, I want to read for us John chapter 10. Starting in verse 10, and I'm going to go down through verse 31. I'm going to skip a couple of verses in between John 10.10 10 and John 10.31. But as I read these verses, I want you to think about something. Because we are talking about an extraordinary God. An extraordinary God. Two main points this morning for you and for me are these. First, he's an extraordinary God because of what he does. He's an extraordinary God because of what he does. And second, he's an extraordinary God because of who he is. An extraordinary God because of what he does and an extraordinary God because of who he is. In these verses, John chapter 10, verse 10 down through verse 31, I saw 14 different items that he, because he's an extraordinary God, has done. Or that he, because he's an extraordinary God, will do. So I'm going to read for us. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. If not, the verses will be on the screen, starting in verse number 10. Jesus is speaking and he says, the thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and all and flees, excuse me, he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from My father, skip down to verse 22. And at that time, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. As it is, it it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Listen to these words in verse 27. My sheep, my sheep, Jesus' sheep, hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me? Heavenly Father, just as we sang a moment ago, you are a good, good Father. You're a good, good Father because of what you have done. You are a good, good father because of who you are. Lord, this morning I pray that you would show us, God, that we would see. We would see from your word, not just that you're good, you are good. Not just that you are great, you are great. Father, that we would see you are extraordinary. You're extraordinary because of what you have done, Lord. 
You are extraordinary because of who you are. Father, you know what the sermon is going to be about. Father, you know the the statements that are going to be made. And Father, you know the, the gray matter of every single one of us in this room. Father, my prayer is that you would allow us to comprehend, me to comprehend, me to grasp, us to grasp these things that you have done and who you are. So that. you, Father, so that you might be lifted high in our lives. You might be lifted high through our words, our actions, our thoughts. For you alone are worthy. God, thank you for all that you're going to do. For all that you have done. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The definition of extraordinary is this. Extraordinary is unusual. It is unusual. It's going to come up on the screen. I know that it is. Because I forgot the rest of the definition. <laughs> extraordinary is very unusual. It's remarkable. It's not arising from just plain activities. That is extraordinary. And that is who God is. He is very unusual. If you look in Acts chapter 19, there is something unique about what goes on in Acts chapter 19. Here's what it's stated. Luke is recording something that's happening to Paul. Paul is going throughout this city and it says this. It says in Acts chapter 19, verse number 6, verse number 8, it says that there were some extraordinary miracles happening at the hand of Paul. Not just ordinary miracles. Ordinary miracles are supernatural things. Extraordinary miracles were happening at the hands of Paul. What were these extraordinary miracles? Well, whoever would come and take this handkerchief that Paul had wiped the sweat off of his brow, and they went and they took that handkerchief that had some of uh, Paul's sweat on it, and they touched a dead person, and the dead person came to life again. They touched other people, and they became well. Even though they were sick, they were lame. All these things were happening. They were extraordinary miracles. It's the only place in Scripture that speaks of extraordinary miracles. And those extraordinary miracles come from an extraordinary God. One of the uh, early church fathers, a man by the name of Gregory, stated this about God. God always was and always is and always will be. Rather, or rather, God always is. For was and will be are fragments of our time. They're fragments of our time and of changeable nature, but He is an eternal being. For in Himself, He sums up and contains all being, having neither beginning in the past nor end in the future, like some great sea of being, limitless, unbounded, transcending all conception of time 
and of nature. We say, John states it in, Re in Revelation chapter 1, that he was and he is and always is for our understanding, for our gray matter, that this God was always in existence, that he is always in existence, and he always will be in existence. But Gregory brings out the other side. For on his side, there is no was or will be. It is just is always being. He's an extraordinary God because of what he does. Well, what does he do? Look there in John chapter 10, and let's see some of the things that he does. John chapter 10, verse 11, verse 14, and verse 17 all state that he lays down his life for his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep, for his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his own in verse 14. He knows the Father, and the Father knows Him in verse 15. Verse 16, there are other sheepfolds, and He is the shepherd of those sheep, and He is going to bring them also, and they will listen to His voice. So ultimately, there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. Fourteen different items in this passage, he is doing or has done. Last couple of weeks, we've celebrated that activity of what he did. He laid down his life for the sheep. It was a big to-do. It wasn't just a big to-do here. It was a big to-do everywhere. And it seems that it is a big to-do every single year that we celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and that we should. But it's not something that we should celebrate one Sunday every year. It is something that we should celebrate every moment of every day, every Sunday, that He is alive. That He came and died. Not because He had to, not because anybody made Him as this passage speaks, but He says, I lay my life down, and I have the authority to lay my own life down, and I have the authority to pick my life up again. Because I'm an extraordinary God. Do you think that? Do you believe that? Because of all these things that He has done, or all these things that He is doing, do you believe that He is an extraordinary God? down at verse 27. Some other things that he has done. My sheep, they hear my voice. So what does that say? That says that he, Jesus, being an extraordinary God, is one who speaks. Do you hear him? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I know that Brian Tillman's hair is getting more gray every single day. I know that we won't go any further there. 
knows everything about you and he knows everything about me. Because he's your shepherd. He's my shepherd. If you're his sheep, if you're one of his children, a son or a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we hear his voice, he knows us, and then there's something that we've got to deal with. That last phrase of verse 27. And they follow me. Are you following him? He's an extraordinary God. He's an extraordinary God because of all these things that he has stated that he has done, that he is doing, laying down his life for his sheep, a good shepherd, knowing his own, knowing the Father, being one with the Father. Are you following him? I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's got us in his hand. He's holding on to us. We're not holding on to him. He's holding on to us. And no one will snatch us out of his hand. And then he says in verse 29 that the Father is greater than all and we're in his hands and nothing or no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. He's an extraordinary God because of what He has done. But this morning, the remainder of my time, I want us to try to grasp that He is an extraordinary God because of who He is. A.W. Tozer stated this about the can of worms that I'm about to open. To meditate on the three persons of the Godhead is to walk in thought through the garden eastward in Eden and to tread on holy ground. Our sincerest effort to grasp the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity must remain forever futile. And only by deepest reverence can it be saved from actual presumptions. He's an extraordinary God because of who He is. There's not one verse in Scripture that states the word Trinity. Not one time in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that word is not spoken. There's not a verse that says God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is not a verse. You can look, I have looked, you can try, I have tried, but it is not there. Yet, all throughout Scripture, from Genesis chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter, he says, let us create man in our image. Not my image, not singular, but let us, plural, create man in our image. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is being baptized. And as He is being baptized, the Father speaks. Of this Son, this One, I am well pleased. And as Jesus is being baptized, the Spirit descends on Him like a dove. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1 speaks of all three in one sentence. No trinity. 
But there are three main statements that the Bible says about the Trinity. And you can see them on, on the screen. The first is this, that God is three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, it speaks of the Father, it speaks of the Son, and it speaks of the Spirit. All three are fully God. And if you just had those two statements, if you didn't have number three up there, there would not be a huge issue. There wouldn't be a huge issue. Yep, that happens. Yep, we can see that because there are three. But then you add that third statement that comes all the way back from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, the Lord God is one God. One God. There's a problem then. There's a contradiction then, right? There's a contradiction because if God is three persons and it is stated throughout Scripture that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, it's the Shema and it states that there is one God, there is a contradiction. No, there's not a contradiction. There's a paradox. Throughout the church, there have been numerous heresies because of those three statements. If you look at those three statements again, you see the first statement that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Out of that understanding, there was a heresy of modalism that came about that denies the relationship of the three. It undercuts the doctrine of the atonement. Jesus, the Son of God, was fully man and fully God. It undercuts this atonement. If you say that God is three persons and that at one time in the Old Testament God came as Father, then the Father went away and the Son came during the times of the Gospels as He lived for some 33 years, that was the mode that He showed Himself. He no longer showed Himself as Father, but then He showed Himself as Son. And now, since He has gone back to heaven, He shows Himself in the mode of the Spirit that is modalism and it is heresy because it denies the relationship of all three of those together. It denies what I just stated about Matthew chapter 3, that all three were at the same spot at the same time. That is modalism and it is wrong. The second truth is that all of them are fully God was a heresy of a man by the name of Arianism, a man by the name of Arian tried to argue, and he did argue, he argued very well that Jesus was not fully God. He was fully man, but he was homoousis. That's Greek for you this morning. I know it's early, you've already had a cup of coffee though, so homoousis, is Jesus homoousis or is Jesus homoousis? One little I. Is Jesus like God? Or is Jesus fully God? Go home and Google a man by the name of Athanasius. 
Because Athanasius, a young preacher, in his early 20s, stood up to Arian and argued back and forth, back and forth, week after week, that Jesus was not just homoousis, like God, but that He was homoousis. He was fully God. And then if you take that third one, that there is one God, it's the heresy of polytheism. Or, to be truly honest, it's the heresy of tritheism, that there are three gods. David Platt stated it this way, one, for us to understand the Trinity, one, you and I need to understand, one, that our God is worthy. He is appropriate to be worshipped, and it is appropriate for us to worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit alike because they all are one God. Second, for us to understand the Trinity, we need to also understand that our minds are finite. For some of us, it's easy. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Takes me like 15 times to read something for me to understand it, especially if it's John Piper, maybe 20. Maybe just lay it down and move on. But our mind is finite. One of the church fathers, a man by the name of Tertullian, stated this, it's not humanly instructed, meaning the, the Trinity is not. Nobody would be so crazy to construct this. I believe that's a true statement. Nobody would come up with, hey, there's Father, Son, and Spirit. All three are fully God, but there is one God. It is out of this world. It is not humanly constructed. In any analogy that you and I try to describe it, we've heard them. We've used them. I'm your pastor. I'm Paige's husband. I'm Nathan and Mary Morgan's father. It doesn't work. It breaks down. Water, ice, and vapor breaks down. Oh, it's one egg. The shell, the, the, the whites, and the, the yolk. Oh, the pretzel. It's got three holes, but one pretzel. No. All of them, whatever they are, they break down. Because there's only one trinity. There is only one trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no analogy that is sufficient to explain them. Platt says, our God is worthy to be worshipped. Our minds are finite and... Third, as we study the Trinity, we need to understand that our salvation is secure. If you and I try to explain the Trinity, we will lose our minds. But if we deny it, we will lose our souls. So what do you do? Got three pages of notes of a conclusion. Let's see if we can do it in seven minutes. So, what do we do? This extraordinary God, an extraordinary God who 
has done all these things for us. An extraordinary God because of who He is. What do we do with that? There's a week I... Um, I listened to a sermon by Francis Chan that he preached, uh, I think it was about six years ago on Easter. The title of the sermon was this, Don't Take God So Casually. Don't take God so casually. If you've got about 57 minutes, go to uh, YouTube and type Francis Chan in and don't take God so casually and listen. But in that sermon, he reminded me of my favorite passage in the Old Testament. Favorite passage in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 6. And he said this about Isaiah and he said this about others, but he said, there's not very many people that actually saw God face to face. And when they saw God face to face, how easy and how casual they were. No, when they saw God face to face, they didn't take God casually. And when you and I see an extraordinary God, because of what He's done and because of who He is, we should not take Him so casually. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees God. He sees him. And in this moment, you can turn over there and you can look at it in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. Something happens when he sees God. When he sees God, all these angels are screaming. I mean, they are screaming how holy God is. They are screaming one after another after another that he is holy. That the whole temple where God is is filling up with smoke. The whole temple is full of his robe. And this man... This prophet, Isaiah, we would say, man, he is a good guy, a great guy. He's the prophet of God. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I am living amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes, they have seen the Lord. not casual. It's not texting OMG. It's not using slang of gosh or God. It's falling on his face because he has come in contact with who this God is as an extraordinary being, as the creator of the universe, as the one who allows him to expand his lungs and contract his lungs. He says, whoa, is me. Yes, we are to come into His presence boldly. We are to come into His presence all because of the blood of Jesus. Yes, we call Him Father and He is good. And We can sit on His lap and say, Abba, Father, because that's who He is. But you and I must come with reverence of who He is. Not flippantly, not nonchalantly coming into that presence. 
This extraordinary God is worthy of praise. This extraordinary God is worthy of worship. He's not to be belittled by your vocabulary or my vocabulary. Not by our attitudes toward a situation or another person. He is to be honored and revered. As I do a number of times a year, it seems, um, I did a funeral yesterday. I did a funeral yesterday for a family that I never met. I did a funeral yesterday for one purpose, really. The purpose is that I had the opportunity to share Jesus with people who don't have a minister, don't have a church home, who are in the midst of a terrible situation. And yesterday was one of those times. And the man who died, died of a heart attack earlier in the week. The man who died was a carpenter. Found out he was a, a good carpenter by a number of people, not just what his family said, but a number of people have stated it. And so yesterday, I shared a message about a carpenter from Nazareth, a carpenter from Galilee, trying to tie in this family with our great God. This morning, I, I try to tie in with you and with myself this great God and all of His attributes of Him being an extraordinary God. Where some of us in this room, if we're honest, some of us in this room believe that he is like a genie and we can just take that lamp off the shelf and say, all right, Lord, I need this. And he gives it to us. That's what you believe of God. If that's what you believe, that you can just rub that lamp where He lives whenever you need Him. That you can cry out to Him on Sundays with arms lifted high and a tear in your eye or a lump in your throat because of this song that moved you. Or you find yourself in a predicament where you and your finite, dense mind can't scheme a way out. So you call on Him for help. That's not God. That's not the God of the universe. That's not the God who created you. That's the God you created. It's the God I created. Because the God of the universe is not a genie. God doesn't grant three wishes. He comes out of the grave in three days. God doesn't sit waiting at your becking call or my becking call. He reigns in brilliant splendor. God doesn't seek to be popular. He sits in majesty. God doesn't fit in boxes on shelves when, where we can just pull Him off whenever we need Him. He measures the span of the universe with the breadth of His hand. God is the God of the universe. And there is no other. 
There's no place for you nor me to go to Him like He's Kroger. You know, we go in Kroger. If we don't click list it, we go in Kroger. And, and as we go in Kroger, we go over to this section because we need something to put in our basket. And we go over to that section because we need something to put in our basket. And I don't know about you, but I don't even go in the rows that have all the clothes on it because I don't need any more of those. i got plenty of those in my closet. And I don't go over to the front left of the, of the store. I, I, I stay in this section. And so often that's what we do with God. We say, hey, I want some of that forgiveness. No, give me about three or four things of forgiveness in my basket. And give me some of His love and give me some of His grace and His faithfulness and His favor. But I don't want any of His judgment. I don't want any of His justice. I don't even want His righteousness or His holiness because I, I, my, my cart's full. We can't do that because that's not God. Either you and I see Him as an extraordinary God for all the things that He's done and all that He is. Either you worship Him with everything you have, you surrender your life, your dreams, your abilities, your all to Him. For He is who He says He is. Or... You believe that he's made up. You believe that he's a figment of a person's imagination. Some of us in the room today are playing church. Some of us in the room today are running to him in the moment that everything hits the fan. When the whirlwind is blowing around us, we run to him. When our wife won't do what we want her to do, when our husband won't do what we want him to do, we run to him. But as soon as she does what we want her to do, we run away. As soon as he does what we want him to do, we run away. And we're just playing. And all along, this extraordinary God, who gave his very best to you, Gave his very best to me. Laid down his life. Cries out and says, this is who I am. I love you. Will you not love me? I desire you to know me like I know you. Will you not know me? I desire to spend time with you. Will you not spend some time with me? This God. desires that every single one of us would have eternal life, that none of us would perish. Yet, open a couple of can of worms, let me open one more as I close. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 states this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance, that's a great word, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. For one, 
a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? If you look at the whole of the chapter, here's what Paul is saying. There is an aroma going up to Almighty, extraordinary God. Some of that aroma is from life to life. It's those who are saved, who are sons and daughters of a great king, who are going to live forever and ever and ever in all eternity with him in heaven. And some of that aroma Dare I say that some of that aroma, even in this room, because I'm not naive to believe that everybody in this room is a believer in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and some of that aroma that is being lifted up to a holy, just God is an aroma from death to death. You say, how in the world could He be a loving God? Because He is giving you, sir, Ma'am, he's giving you exactly what you want. If you want him as Savior and Lord, he is your Savior and he is your Lord. Aroma from life to life. If you don't want him, you don't want to be around him, you would rather spend eternity away from him, he says, go do it. Because I didn't create you a robot. I want you to love me because you love me. Here's who I am. I gave you life, and I came that you might have it abundantly. Abundantly right now and abundantly forevermore, if you desire it. Heavenly Father, it is a weighty subject to broach who you are and how you have described yourself. And Father, I, I, am, I am not one to believe that I could tell who you are in a series of 40-minute sermons, let alone one. And Father, there is a multitude of attributes that you have shown us through your word of who you are. God, you are a good, good father. That's who you are. You love us and you desire us to come to know you. You desire us to spend time with you. You desire us. God, you loved me so much that you would not allow me to stay the way that I was. Alienated, away from you, an enemy of yours. You want me to have a seat at your table. You made a way for me to have a seat at your table. You have adopted us as sons and daughters because of who you are. God, may we see that this morning. Sir, we're about to sing. We're about to sing a, a song that we call a response song. Ma'am, it is for you to sing. It is for you, sir, students, adults, kids. It's, it's for us to respond to this extraordinary Father. If you don't know Him, He loves you. 
He desires for you to know Him today. It's an opportunity for you to respond back to Him. So stand and join with us as we sing. The altar is open. If you need to come pray, come pray. Come pray for somebody. Come pray for yourself. If you need for me to pray with you, I'll be more than happy to. But it's an opportunity for us to respond to our great, extraordinary God.